Today is Wednesday, August 2nd, 2017. Time for episode 16 of the Barnhart Podcast. Happy feast day to everybody in Los Angeles. On the traditional calendar, today is the feast of Our Lady Queen of the Angels. Do you suppose the Los Angelinos are observing that today, or do you think they're going to wait for the external observance on Sunday? I think they'll probably wait for the external observance. Good call. Okay, before we pick up uh, where we left off last week, a little bit of housekeeping. After Anne publicly shamed me about not having a website, I put up supernerdmedia.com. It is a first draft website for now, and it certainly looks like it was designed by a programmer. Uh, But the essential information (laughs) is there for now. Information for contacting me, donating to the projects on which I'm working, and you can send Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin if you want to. That ties into something we're going to be talking about in about a week. And uh, you can also buy Anne's Diabolical Narcissism DVD, and some more information will be up there soon, uh, especially once the new podcast starts, which could be as early as this weekend. Yeah, that's that's very exciting. I'm really glad to hear that you're going to be branching out and doing another podcast, and I won't I won't be involved in it, but it's is it correct, Super Nerd, that it's going to be a group of men, and y'all are just going to kind of sit around in roundtable? Uh, actually, the there's possibly two podcasts I'm working on. One is uh, somebody who... <laughs> Uh, I don't think I'm spoiling much on, on this to say it's it's a V Church militant, and this has nothing to do with Michael Voris. This is the guy who was using the term on Facebook before Michael Voris decided to change his, the t- the title of his organization. But mm-hmm. uh, we're gonna the the schedule right now is we're gonna try to uh, kick this one off on Friday, and it may be somewhat of an experimental first episode or episode zero. Uh, I don't know what what'll happen with that exactly. But uh, I, I have the working title on my other podcast is called The Other Podcast. So, uh, which is, again, <laughs> it's, it's, creative. It's, it's, a, it's a programmer pun. So uh, it, one of the podcasts I listen to uh, from other programmers is, is called Yet Another Podcast, which is yet another is, is, is one of these things that programmers say a lot of times, like yet another markup language, yet another encoding algorithm, yet another this or that. So uh, my other podcast is going to be called The Other Podcast with SuperNerd. Uh, that probably won't be this one, and it may not all be men, but uh, it's going to be the idea is conversations that would be instructive or helpful to somebody who is interested in the Catholic faith, uh, either learning about it or learning more about it or growing in one way or another. Uh, the idea is to have to have the kind of conversations that the average Catholic would be interested or traditional Catholic would be interested in listening in on. Uh, if it's not that interesting, I'll, when I'm done, I'll, we, we may not post it. We'll see. But um, that should be starting <laughs> well- soon. It sounds like an excellent project, and we'll keep everybody uh, abreast of your of your uh, projects and goings on here. Excellent, we're happy for you. And I will revise the website and uh, at supernerdmedia.com. And there's already a, a page out there for the podcast projects I'm working on, and and that will be revised to have more information as things come out. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook uh, for people who are really interested in that. There are. Uh, information for those those uh, media over on the contact page on supernerdmedia.com. Also on today's calendar, and this goes along great with t- with the topic, uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori, who is the moral theologian of the church. And let's just dive right back into what we were talking about last time. Um, how about uh, for those who did not listen to the last episode, do you want to recap and then uh, pick up again where we're at? Yeah, just very, very, very briefly. Um, the, the the theme of these two podcasts is shame, and how how good and salutary and and psycho spiritually healthy shame is in our lives. Because remember, God can't have mercy on you if you aren't sorry for your sins. Um, compassion means that 
you enter into someone else's suffering, a person who isn't sorry for their sins and doesn't believe that their sins are evil is not, by definition, is not eligible for compassion or for mercy. Because if you if you desire the evil that you are doing to keep going, if you desire it to persist, then there's no way that God can enter into that with you. God can only give you his mercy and he can only have compassion on you if you want the evil that you are doing, the evil that you are mired in, to stop. So, therefore, shame is a gift. Shame is a grace. We know this because shame is the fruit of the first joyful mystery of the rosary uh, upon which we, we pray. The excuse me, sorry, sorrow, sorrowful mystery, indeed, not the joyful mysteries. Uh, the sorrowful mystery um, upon which we meditate on our Lord's agony in the garden. The fruit of that is ever increasing sorrow for sin, and that's important. We should in, we should in, desire an increase, an ever increasing sorrow for our sins, including those that are in the past, including those that have been sacramentally forgiven, and we'll we'll get into that in more detail later. Um, the modern, the the Francis modernist, Novus Orderist, Vatican Twoist, whatever you want to call it, this church that has been infiltrated by these Freemasons, communists, and sodomites, what they are desperately trying to convince people of is the lie that either your sins aren't sins or your sins don't matter. I think that's very clear. That's everything. What's what's that's that's Bergoglio's entire shtick right there. Either your sins aren't sins at all, or they don't matter. Um, we talked about in the last podcast self-policing, how healthy Christian cultures self-police, and how this is directly related to subsidiarity. That you know, local government law enforcement that that isn't even really necessary to engage the vast majority of of problems, sins, misbehaviors that go on in in a culture, because those things should be handled on not just the local level, but the sub-local level. And by that, I mean, first and foremost, with the individual themselves, sin, uh, excuse me, shame should actually prevent you from doing certain things like going outside without any clothes on, um, being a skank, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Your own internal shame should stop it. If that doesn't work, then your family needs to step in. And, you know, parents should not permit their daughters to go out dressed like nickel whores like they do now. Um, if, if, if kids, you know, go off to college and decide that they are going to shack up and are clearly fornicating, the family should step in and do something about that first and foremost by cutting off the money, for example. Um, well, that's fine. If you're going to be a fornicator, if you're going to shack up and have sex outside of marriage, you're not going to get any money from me or from your parents, from your family to support any of this. That is an application of subsidiarity. And then the the next level beyond that, and I talked about the anecdote about when I was a kid and I went to the threshing bee and there was a drunk who was screaming and yelling the F word and there's all these kids around and all of the men who were there present just kind of simultaneously stood up, walked down and, and took care of this guy. Didn't have to go run and get the cops, didn't have to do any of that. Healthy Christian society self-polices on the very, very low level. 
individual family neighborhood okay so very important and you know if there's no shame then that that dynamic is not going to be present and what it's now devolved to is anyone who who shames another person is accused of being a hater and then this whole evil uh, culture of self-worship and psychoanalysis especially has is constantly drilling into people the notion that if you shame yourself, then you are psychologically unwell. You are, you know, you are committing an act of violence against yourself. You're um, a and Taliban we'll type person. You're you're a Taliban type person. You know, you're crazy to to in to. Um, to not manifest all of your sexual perversions, to not to not sleep around. If you don't permit yourself to do this, if you shame yourself in any way and keep yourself from performing horrific sins, then you're psychologically unwell. And this is, again, back to Bergoglio. He's calling people rigorous. He's calling people lovers of the law, pharisaical. What he's doing is he he is trying to shame people who actually do have a conscience and try to keep themselves from committing horrible, terrible sins. And, you know, we we don't need to. <laughs> it goes without saying that the sixth commandment is kind of the 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 eye of this hurricane that everything's swirling around, be it heterosexual fornication, adultery, um, and now obviously, as I've been screaming and yelling, and now we absolutely know, because it's been publicly reported, the Vatican is a giant bathhouse. They're all fags. The, in order to get into the curia, the, the percentage of those men that are sodomites is just, it's so high that the good, the few, the handful, literally a handful, one, two, three, four, five, of remaining prelates inside the curia that are not raging sodomites have, have basically, in an earthly sense, given up. The infiltration, the percentage is so high and so intense that they say there is no way that you can fix this naturally. We're going to need some sort of supernatural assistance to clean all of these sodomites, all of these faggots out of here. It's clergy, it's priests, it's prelates, it's cardinals, it is its staff, its employees, its Vatican Museum tour guides. That whole thing is a ginormous, just satanic web of, of sodomites. The whole thing, the whole thing needs to be cleaned out. And these men are engaging in the filthiest, most disgusting acts of sodomy right there in the Vatican. The, the orgy that was exposed in the, the palace of the, of the Holy Office of the, Congre uh, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, that isn't even the worst of it. There are filthy, disgusting, wretched sodomites who are having sex inside St. Peter's Basilica itself. Mere yards from the Blessed Sacrament exposed. Mere yards from the tomb of St. Peter and the relics of St. Peter. Okay? There is Satanism, ladies and gentlemen, going on inside the Vatican. And Satanism and sodomy, those two Venn diagrams, overlap tremendously, okay? Think about it. What how evil 
And how far gone would you have to be to be not just a sodomite who goes to gay bars and does that whole thing? I mean, as as incomprehensibly disgusting, evil, perverted, wicked, whatever adjective you want to lay on top of that. That isn't even the worst of it. How how sick do you have to be? How evil in your soul do you have to be to go into the Vatican, to even go into St. Peter's Basilica and commit these acts of sodomy with clerics, with prelates inside the Petrine Basilica itself? The fact that a person would even be capable or have the thought of doing something so spectacularly evil, sacrilegious to desecrate the Petrine Basilica like that, it, it, it informs us that Satanism is happening. There, some of these men are clearly, overtly, explicitly worshiping Satan. And I'm not talking about in kind of the sense that we see in Oklahoma or we see, you know, they're doing stuff at Harvard or they're doing stuff somewhere up Minneapolis or somewhere there, you know, there's, they're having this, this problem with now there are more and more of these quote unquote satanic rituals being staged. What most of those people are that we're seeing in the U.S. doing those things, th- those guys are atheists, and they are engaging in these satanic liturgical acts in order to in order to prove a point about um, belief in God at all. See, they're atheists, so they're trying to prove the point that this is all stupid and this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we do these things, yes or no, one way or the other, because we don't believe in, in God at all. We don't believe in anything supernatural or preternatural at all. That's not what we're talking about, about this stuff that's going on inside the Vatican. What's going on inside the Vatican is is these men that are actually engaging in Satanism, and almost all of them are sodomites, is they do believe in God. They do believe in all of it. They believe in the Mass. They believe in in the Eucharist, obviously, because all of this sur- revolves around Eucharistic desecration. They're doing this inside the Vatican. They are actively worshiping Satan qua Satan. Um, and so I- I'm convinced that over the last several decades, as Malachi Martin wrote about, you know, since the middle of the 20th century, especially that these people came into power, they've come into fruition, these things are going on. And Satan is ascendant, he is in a certain sense, enthroned inside the Vatican. And these things are real, and they're going on. And all of this business of trying to purge shame out of our culture and out of the church, this is all a function of Satanism. Well, and at those um, levels, I think those folks are probably well beyond shame. There's something I want to mention real quick. You you talked about mm-hmm. uh, the lack of shame uh, shacking up you know, before marriage. Uh, yeah. And, and especially talking about how uh, Bergoglio talks about the doctors of the law and people who are so interested in the law. Well, also in church law, there there's a provision that if you were to— uh, engage in premarital sex and get married before you are married or get to get um, pregnant before you're married, you are dispensed from your Sunday obligation so as to not cause scandal to other people because there was a sense of shame that was well embedded in the community at that point in time where if they saw an unmarried woman who was pregnant, that was scandalous to the point that she was, she was dispensed from going to Sunday mass until after the, the child was born and could be adopted away. Or oh, however, however that's going to be taken care of. And, of course, we don't have that anymore. We, we Even in hearing that, how many of you just thought, well, that's kind of antiquated. You know, what, what's so shameful? We see it so often. Well, that's the point. We've lost the sense of shame. 
Right. And that's one of the things. First of all, um, the, the couple would get married, but they get married in the sacristy. There wouldn't be a wedding. You don't get, I'm sorry, but you, there, are, there are women for whom a white wedding is just out of the question. You don't get that. You go get married in the sacristy with a priest and two and two witnesses. And that's it. That's it. The church also used to provide the service of having these homes where girls could go who fell pregnant out of wedlock. They would go, they would live in this house far away from their own community. They would finish the pregnancy, they would give birth, and then, you know, whatever happened as as um, as things progressed. And there's lots of We've all heard stories about, again, before the middle of the 20th century, when all when all of this mortal sin became normalized, we would hear anecdotes about, you know, a girl who fell pregnant out of wedlock when she was 15, 16, 17 years old. She would go off, she would have the baby, and then sometimes the the mother and the daughter would be raised as if they were siblings to each other there were just there people were extraordinarily concerned with not scandalizing other people and why were people concerned about this because causing scandal is a grave grave sin the words of our lord about when he says woe to those who cause sc-, the, the scandals must come to to the world and scandals will come to the world but woe to those by whom the scandal comes, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and for them to be thrown into a large body of water. This is powerful, frightening imagery. And now what we see is that not only do people commit scandal shamelessly, they're they're now rubbing people's faces in it in this extraordinarily Lutheran mindset, saying, "Look at this! The fact that I am such a scandalous sinner and that and that I am not ashamed for what I have done is proof. It is proof of how how great my faith is. This is Lutheranism. Sin boldly, sin boldly. But then, how does he finish it?" But have have even more faith. But let your faith abound all the more. So, it, it, this is this is psychopathic. Okay, so that's basically a, a retread of what we talked about in in the first half in the last podcast in the first half of this topic. Now moving on, um, I want to really drill down on this whole. Um, Bergoglio satanic tactic of conflating mercy with permissiveness, okay? Conflating God's mercy with do whatever you want, it doesn't matter, permissiveness, and conflating charity, that is love, with indifference. This the these two premises, these two statements, these two axioms are the entire base premise that this whole satanic Bergolian anti-papacy and setting up, trying to set up this new Freemasonic one world religion, it's all revolving around this. Conflate mercy with permissiveness, conflate charity with indifference. Now, we mentioned that today is the feast of St. Alphonsus Liguori. Cannot recommend St. Alphonsus strongly enough. He is a um, moral theologian, doctor of the church, very easy to read. And in fact, I found his complete collected Sunday sermons. I have, I bought the book and I have the book, but it's all available free online because a lot of this stuff is outside of the public domain. That's another 
benefit of all of this. If you study the church fathers, the doctors of the church, most of this stuff is sufficiently old as to be out of copyright, essentially. And so, so much of this stuff is not just available online. It's available online for free. So, you know, the notion that, oh, I'm invincibly ignorant. There's no way I could have ever known this. Well, I'm sorry. You carry around a baby television in your pocket that gives you access to the sum of human knowledge essentially for free. I mean, you pay your phone bill to have to have the phone, which you're using anyway to, you know, engage in in the tabernacle of Satan, Facebook, or whatever it is, to say that you then were invincibly ignorant that you didn't have access to any of these things, especially when they're available at zero cost in the public domain, That's and you carry this baby television around on your person all the time, you are not going to be able to make any arguments about invincible ignorance, period, full stop. So, um... So St. Alphonsus, his, his complete Sunday sermons are available online, um, and we will include that link. But there's one, there, there's one quote from St. Alphonsus that is just particularly germane to this question. And I, I don't like to read, uh, you know, verbatim too often, but, you know, sometimes you just can't say anything any better than someone else. So I'm going to go ahead and read this. This is from um, St. Alphonsus's sermon, Sermon, let's see what this is, XLI, that's 41, Sermon 41 on the abuse of divine mercy, on the abuse of divine mercy is the title of this sermon. So here we go. When you intend to commit sin, who, I ask, promises you mercy from God? Certainly, God does not promise it. It is the devil that promises it that you may lose God and be damned. Beware, says St. John Chrysostom, never to attend to that dog who promises the mercy of God. If, beloved sinners, you have hitherto offended God, hope and tremble. If you desire to give up sin and you detest it, hope, because God promises pardon to all who repent of the evil they have done. But if you intend to continue in your sinful course, tremble, lest God should wait no longer for you, but cast you into hell. Why does God wait for sinners? Is it that they may continue to insult him? No, he waits for them that they may renounce sin and that he may thus have pity on them and forgive them. Therefore, the Lord waiteth that he may have mercy on you. Isaiah thirty eighteen. I want to jump in real quick. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I did, I, I, if you're not done with the quote, go ahead and finish. But no, I, that's, that's something no, I want to interject. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's fine. Talking about the, the writings of St. Alphonsus, it's not the sermons, but there, if you if you want to take a look, and we'll put this link in the uh, show notes also. Mm-hmm. On the website, religiousbookshelf.com, there is a um, the compendium of St. Alphonsus's writings uh, arranged as meditations and readings for every day of the year. And I'm looking yeah. at today's, the, the headers for today, Christians in hell know they have been given all the graces necessary for salvation. That's the beginning You're of the kidding, morning that's meditation. Today? That's today. <laughs> Indeed. Well, that's, that's a little bit of the divine providence right there. We'll link to that as well. Now, there's one more little blurb from um, St. Alphonsus's sermon that I, that I, it's very short, and it is this. St. Bernard says that the confidence which sinners have in God's goodness when they commit sin 
procures for them not a blessing, but a malediction from the Lord. O deceitful hope, which sends so many Christians to hell. They do not hope for the pardon of sins, which they repent. They hope that though they continue to sin, God will have mercy on them. And thus they make the mercy of God serve as a motive for continuing to offend him. Unquote. Sounds man, th- Exactly. That is it, man. That is it right there. That is the encapsulation of Lutheranism. That is the encapsulation of postmodernism, Freemasonry, Bergolianism, the whole nine. It's all tied up, wrapped in a bow. There it is, laid out by St. Alphonsus Liguori. So um, I, I want to make the, the very, very important point now that no one, no one ever can give you or anyone else permission to commit a sin. No one. No human being, no institution, nothing can give you permission to flagellate and, and crucify our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No one can ever ever give you permission to do that. This is so important because the church has been so infiltrated by now. And I've heard anecdotes about this now for years and years and years, as long as I've been doing this. People email me and say, I went in the 1970s or 1980s and the priest told me that it was okay to contracept. The priest gave me permission to sin. The priest gave me permission to go ahead and get married again after I had been civilly divorced, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I've heard anecdotes of people who have been told by faggot priests in the confessional that sodomy was not a sin, certainly that masturbation was not a sin. Um, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've heard anecdotes of priests telling people that self-abuse was not a sin. No person ever, spiritual director, confessor in the confessional, priest from the pulpit, um, anti-pope, no one. And this is why the church, the the true church, the, the bride of Christ is indefectible. The bride of Christ cannot by, by metaphysical definition, cannot give permission for anyone to, to, crucify Jesus Christ, to torture and crucify him. It's just, it's not possible. So if you hear things coming out of the institutional church where people like anti-Pope Bergoglio and all of his Freemasonic sodomite minions seem to be giving permission for you to commit sin. You know that this is not the bride of Christ. This is not the spotless, indefectible, bride and body of Christ, Jesus Christ as, as its head, because Christ would never get, the, the bride would never give permission to torture and kill the bridegroom. Christ would never give permission to commit to commit these crimes against him. You see, it's not permission. He took it on. He took it on. But he's but in him doing it, in him going in his going to Calvary, he's not giving us permission to sin. 
He's taking it on in spite of the fact that these things are infinite offenses against him and that we don't deserve it. It's this completely gratuitous gift. It's not giving us legal permission to sin. So you have to have this precision straight in your mind not only as you're hearing this crap come out come out of the Bergolian and the Novus Ordoist Vatican Twoist Church, but also in your day-to-day operations just going out in the world, where it seems that every time you turn around, someone is trying to convince you that you have permission to sin. Someone is leading by example in their shamelessness. Someone is trying to tell you that if you really love Jesus, loving Jesus means never having to say you're sorry, Loving Jesus means never having to even be sorry. And in fact, if if you sin and you commit sins, hold them up. Show them to the world. Don't be ashamed. If you really love Jesus and if you really have faith, and now it's so far gone, if you're really a Catholic, you'll be proud of this. You'll you'll dangle this in front of everyone in order to, to prove what, what a faithful, good Catholic you are. This is satanic scandal of the highest order, and it's one of the proof sets I'm convinced that we're, that this might be the run-up, as I call it, to the big show. This, this might not just merely be the days of Fatima. This might be the end times, end times, because I, I just, I'm hard-pressed to imagine how it could be worse than than people now completely reflexively going back and saying to commit horrific sins and not be ashamed for it and to scandalize as many people as you can is proof of how good of a Christian you are. I mean, yeah, it's Lutheranism, but now now it's in the church. It's in the institutional church. Um, so this is why um, anti-Pope Bergoglio is so wildly popular in polls and it's why he plays to this. It's populism, which all Marxists always do. They're always playing to populism. Even in a 36-hour news cycle, people will always, always remember someone or something that ratifies them in their sins, which is why people who hold themselves out publicly as being, you know, public professional Catholics especially, the scandal that's being committed here is that anyone who has any engagement with these people, and most of them are in the Novus Ordo wing of the church, let's be honest, there's a few what we'll call um, trad conservatives, which is kind of trads, but are who who are kind of lukewarm and are willing to play nice with all this. But most of these people are very much in the Novus Ordo wing of the church. These people behaving scandalously and then holding themselves out is 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 a scandal because other people see this and say, well, that person is holding themselves out as uh, as this this devout Catholic. And look at what they're doing. If they're doing it, it must be okay for me to do it. The other smaller subset of people who are scandalized by things like this are people who look at the hypocrisy of these people um, and say, well, it must all be bullshit because, look, these people who are holding themselves out as being super Catholics are, are just wallowing in sin. They're shameless. Therefore, this whole thing, it just, it just must all be bullshit. There's only so much 
um, scandal like that that a person can take before they just throw their hands up and say, this, this has all been a lie the whole time. Forget it. Never mind. I'm done. And then they apostatize. They completely, they completely leave the church because all of these scandals caused seem to them to be a proof set that the entire structure is a lie and that Christ isn't God and therefore we aren't saved and therefore it doesn't matter. So there's really two sets. There's the people who stay in and believe these heresies, and then there's the people who are so scandalized that they throw up their hands and apostatize. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of the words of the Blessed Virgin in her Magnificat, where she says, His mercy, God's mercy, is from generation to generations to them that fear Him. To them that fear Him. If you do not have any fear of the Lord, if you do not and, and what is fear of the Lord? Certainly servile fear is essential. He, he is God and we are not. He is infinite and we are specks. And it is very, very important to maintain that understanding because if you don't maintain that understanding, then his incarnation isn't really that big of a deal. His going to the cross, eh, it really isn't that big of a deal if he's like our peer. And again, this is something that it seems to me the Novus Ordoist and post-Vatican Twoist infiltrated church, this is one of their means of attack, is trying to bring God down and trying to make it just like he's he's our our brother at best, at most. He's, he's, he's the bro who says, it's all right, dude. Yeah, he exactly. And I'm so I'm so glad you phrased it like that, super nerd, because I've got that in in my notes as the the mantra is Matt, that's okay. So, you know, you commit a sin and Jesus is there on the cross and he looks down at you and you and you say, Well, I did I did this against the sixth commandment, and according to this new infiltrated church, Christ looks down from the cross, shrugs his shoulders and says, nah, that's okay. No, 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 no. It is not okay. It is not okay what you did. And Christ's, and Christ's death on the cross, his redemption and his offer of salvation is not him saying, meh, it's okay. It's not okay what you did. Even if you've been, even if you've confessed it, even if you are sacramentally forgiven, it is, it, that does not mean, ladies and gentlemen, that it is okay. Those sins that you committed years and years ago in your youth that hopefully you've now gotten out of, or the sins that you're committing right now that hopefully you will confess and be liberated from, un until the very end of time, it's not okay that you did that. You can be forgiven, you, uh, you can be forgiven, you are redeemed, and if you confess, are repentant, so on and so forth, those sins are forgiven, but they're not okay, they'll never be okay, and you, and not only should you never forget that, but as hopefully we all advance in sanctity, as we move toward the day of our death, be it sooner or be it later, hopefully we're always increasing in sanctity and drawing closer to God. The closer to God you become and you draw, and the more you increase in sanctity, the more 
the thought of the sins of your past life, which certainly, hopefully, have been sacramentally forgiven. Okay, let's, for the sake of argument, let's say that they are. Your sins have been sacramentally forgiven, but as you progress in sanctity, the thought of your sins that you committed in your previous life, should that thought should become ever more uh, repulsive, you should feel ever more shame, you should be ever more disgusted by what you did, you should be ever more... Um, help me out here, what's the word? It, it, it should, in a certain Sorrowful. sense, in your... Sorrowful, exactly. You should be more and more and more uh, revolted, contrite. contrite by what you were and be desirous of leaving all of that behind you, being ashamed of it, and increasing in sanctity. Now, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, this sounds like you're just going to wrap yourself into a basket case of, of paralysis, and it, it doesn't work that way. In fact, it's freeing. Um, it's, it's as you advance in sanctity, there's a, there is a, a freedom that comes with knowing and understanding these things, but you have to be careful. You can't be prideful and think, well, now I could never fall back into sin again. Oh, yes, you could. And if you start thinking that you couldn't fall back into sin again, Satan is going to be all over you. So be careful about that. And that's another reason why you should be thinking about your past sins and you should be thinking about how disgusting they were and how much they hurt our Lord. That, that's the point of filial fear. And if, if you if you manage to get to free yourself from those sins, it, what what Ann just said there, it, it, being being humble, uh, Satan has his plans for the pious as well. And if you're trapped in sin, whether it's a habitual sin or or non habitual sin, as the case may be, uh, mm -hmm. once you get out of that, the temptation is going to be, oh, how awesome am I? I got myself out of that. Some Jan yeah. Jansenist idea like that that goes straight to mm -hmm. pride, and you're going to end up in a worse situation if you actually give into that. And if you as soon as you realize. Uh, that you're having that temptation, you've got to commit uh, acts of humility. Commit's not the right word. Um, to do acts of humility, perform, to realize that... acts that, of humility, yeah. Right. Um, otherwise, you're going to end up in a worse situation. And that's exactly right. And the next part of this, servile fear is essential, but what's even, what is morally superior, obviously, to servile fear is filial fear. It Filial fear is... You don't, you, you're ashamed of your sins of the past, obviously, and you don't want to commit any more sins because you love our Lord and you don't want to hurt him. You don't want to disappoint him. This is why uh, di narcissists, diabolical narcissists, sociopaths, psychopaths, it's, it's almost impossible for these people to understand this concept because by definition, these people are basically incapable of loving another human being. Now, I'm going to assume that the vast majority of our listenership here are not diabolical narcissists, are not um, psychopaths who are incapable of loving another human being. So we can all we can all enter into this and we can understand this. Have you ever loved anyone? Are you married? Think about when you were um courting your spouse and in the early days and you were you were you were just in love to use the term in love with your spouse you didn't want to disappoint them and hopefully it, that that still persists even as love grows and matures in marriage and so forth um children like I, i'm always reminded of the television show leave it to beaver wally and the beaver they they didn't want to to disappoint ward their father why 
But they feared him. Certainly they fear him. They had a servile fear of him because Ward Cleaver was a masculine father and he would discipline his sons if, if it came to that and if that was required. But also, above that, Wally and the Beaver didn't want to do anything wrong because they didn't want to disappoint him. They loved him. They loved and respected him. And they didn't want to disappoint him. They didn't want to break his heart. And so the two qualities of filial fear and servile fear were were generally present and manifested some way in these morality plays like Leave it to Beaver, like the Andy Griffith show. So that just kind of gives people a frame of reference. This is why going to mass, um, praying, having, again, I, and I, I make no apology for using this Protestant phrase, having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is absolutely essential because what that, what that breeds and makes grow in you is filial fear. I don't want to commit a sin because I don't want Jesus to be hurt by me, disappointed in me. I want to be his good girl. I want to be his good girl. And so that when that starts going to work in you and that becomes the breaker and it makes you stop and it holds you back from doing things, that is that's just a wonderful situation to be in where you're not just thinking about, I don't want to go to hell. I mean, that's obviously good. You don't, you don't want to go to hell and God can work with anything. But if you, if you have a sin or an occasion of sin put in front of you and you choose not to commit the sin first and foremost, because you don't want to hurt Jesus any more than you already have, that is that is relatively speaking especially in these dark days in this in this world you're 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 on the front end of the bell curve there spiritually it seems to me it's an extremely healthy good salutary and our lady says it his mercy is from generation to generations to them that fear him bergoglio keeps pounding and preaching no fear of the lord none Sin boldly, it doesn't matter. Jesus, Jesus is your pet golden retriever who's just, you pat him on the head and he, he's just going to be there no matter what you do. You don't, you don't have to have any fear of him. In fact, sometimes, according to this satanic document, Amoris Laetitiae, the exuberance of sodomy, which is the literal translation of that into Latin. Amoris is used to refer to sodomitical acts in classical Latin. Um, it, according to this document, Bergoglio says things like, um, sometimes God wills for people to persist in sin. He, he wills for people to persist in mortal sin. This, this is satanic blasphemous heresy of the highest order. And, you know, nobody, apparently we've had the dubia brothers give the five dubia, but, um, where's the correction coming on this? Have, have Cardinal Burke and, and the remaining Cardinals, have they not had enough time? Really? Um, this is, this is satanic blasphemous arch heresy and no one will say anything. And it's the cornerstone. It's the cornerstone of their position. Now I want to move into, um, I want to move into Mary Magdalene because it seems to me it occurred to me because her feast was just not too long ago. It was, it was last week um, that so she let is. Me, let me interject real, real quick. Uh, yeah, and, and again, yeah. based on a comment somebody made by email, uh, worried about uh, even going to confession because they weren't uh, sorry enough for their sins. 
Uh, we mentioned the idea of mm. imperfect contrition, uh, that, which mm-hmm. is the idea that I'm sorry for my sins because I don't want to end up in hell, which is where my sins would put me, versus right. perfect contrition, where you're sorry for sin for committing sins, either that you have committed them or it is sorrow that will keep you from, from committing the sins because it would be um, hurtful to Jesus. It would be hurtful to God. If, right. In the case of, if you need to go to confession, go to confession. Uh all that is necessary, and this, this is definitely a, a, a mercy without going in the Francis direction with it. This is a mercy of Jesus that uh, all that is necessary for sacramental uh, absolution of your sins is to be sorry for your sins because you would go to hell if you don't get them uh, absolved. Of course, yes. you need to make that firm purpose of amendment and take the, ten, the sources of temptation out of your life. Uh, if you find yourself uh, falling frequently, uh, go to confession more often. Go daily if you can, if you have to. Um, mm-hmm. the St. Alphonsus, we talked about him a few times in his, um, guidance to priests, uh, he has the rule of thumb and this is a rule of thumb. This is not a, a, a matter of, of, you know, hard and fast rule from Jesus, but the, the, a, it, it's a guidance for, uh, uh spiritual, con- uh, con- con- uh, excuse me, priests who are, who are hearing confessions that if a penitent confesses the exact same sin three times in a row, that you, you have to begin to wonder whether or not um, uh, absolution could even be valid at that point. And it's not a defect on the part of the priest. It's a, it's a manifest defect that you have not uh, done what is necessary to manifest your uh, amendment of life, that you're, gonna, you're actually taking steps to make things go away uh, in terms of sin. Well, okay, one way you can get around this is go more often. You need it, obviously. Um, in, in the cases of, of diabolical possession, one of the, the, the remedies of, of people who are literally trapped by Satan is to go to confession more frequently. It's a very, very powerful sacrament, and the effects of it can't be understated. If you are trapped in a habitual sin, go to confession more often. Um, obviously, if you can go daily, I mean, that sounds like, like overkill to a lot of people, but if you are really in that bad a shape, go daily because at least at that point, you are increase, increasing the option of being, or increasing the possibility of going from one confession to the next without committing the sin. Uh, the the effects of the soul uh, of the confession are medicine to the soul, but all you need for for the sacramental effectiveness is the realization: my if I were to die right now, I would be in hell, and I mm-hmm. don't want to go there. So that's I I need to get right with Jesus because I can't progress in the spiritual life in any way meaningful way. When I'm in, in mortal sin, you cannot gain supernatural grace when you're in, in, in the state of mortal sin. And so that, that, exactly. first, that first requirement, you've got to get yourself out of that condition. Go to, go to confession. I mean, build up to the, to the uh, ability to be sorry for the sins because they, they hurt Jesus in that sense. And you know, rather than getting down about it, you've, not, not that anyone wants to get into habitual sins, but if you are, that habit— uh, is something that as you, uh, as you as you progress in fighting that sin, it's going to become a source of grace. And this gets into St. Alphonsus, or not St. Alphonsus, St. Ignatius's comment that the devil fights like a woman. Uh, once you are able to resist the temptation to that habitual sin, it's going to get a lot easier to get over it. Because once, once Satan realizes the temptation to do something wrong, you're resisting it and building your ability to, to not ever fall to it again. He's going to stop it. He's going to stop tempting you on that point. And, he, and he's going to come after you on pride. We already mentioned that earlier. He's yeah, going to make you think yeah. that you're the reason that you're getting over this and you're not. Uh, mm-hmm. That's why you have to be, have, have fear of the Lord, be humble. But I just want to get that in there that we hadn't specifically talked about 
the idea of imperfect contrition as as the necessary the essential necessary requirement at a minimum level for being able to have an effective confession that absolves your sins and because that point was raised by somebody in email i wanted to make sure that was that was mentioned because the the state of catechesis today is not as well as is not as good as it used to be 100 years ago so th- this is something that maybe um maybe folks are, are are out there thinking hey i don't feel this emotional sorrow for my sins therefore i can't go to confession no it this has nothing to do with your feelings it, this, this starts with an act of the will do you mm-hmm. do you hate jesus or do you want to love him and be with him and in, in, in forever in heaven except that the state of your soul at the moment at the, at the moment would make that impossible if you died then get in the confessional confess um realizing that yes okay not every priest nowadays is is as schooled as they used to be in the teachings of saint alphonsus and how to how to deal with sinners um in a rare outlying circumstance you might even have to coach the priest to say hey say repeat the following words for me i, I absolve you yeah. of your sins um yeah. it, it, it because there are some priests who will say, oh, God forgives your sins, go and, go and be in peace. And ironically, priests who, who are like that, if you say, well, just say this phrase, it'll make me feel better. Well, it's true. It will make you feel better when your sins are forgiven. But if the but they, the, the kinds of priests who, who might do that um, would probably uh, get, get the priest to say the right formula. It's, I forgive you of your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And of course, if they're saying it in Latin, you don't have to coach them on that because they, they were taught well. So... Just want to get right. that in there, just in case anybody had any outstanding questions on that topic. Well, and um, correct me if I'm wrong here, Super Nerd, um, because you've been in the church your whole life, obviously, and you got catechesis from from childhood. So if if I'm mistaken here, please feel free to correct me. But um, it seems to me that something that might help is identifying several different parishes where you could go. And and I, I, speaking for myself, um, I I. I'm always happy to avail myself of going to confession with a priest that I don't know, where I am completely anonymous. And when I, oftentimes, when I get the chance to do that, um, I'll make a general confession. You know, uh, if if you're a person, and also we're kind of <laughs> talking between the lines here, and I'm not a person who likes to talk between the lines. The huge habitual sin that. Um, that is just so pervasive through our culture today, obviously, is pornography. So when we're talking about people who are dealing with a sin that is so pernicious and that is a, a daily, daily struggle with mortal sin, for, for this culture, a lot of times what we're talking about is we're talking about people who are consuming pornography and masturbating. And these people could then conceivably be going and confessing mortal sins on a daily basis. Um identify multiple parishes that you could go to and figure out when the confession times. And also, um, if, if you have these hippie priests who are saying things to you like that isn't a sin or you're, you're bad and being overly scrupulous for coming to confession as frequently as you are, um, one of the things that you can do is that you can move around and you not necessarily go to the same priest, especially if the priest is bad, you don't have to go to the same priest every single day. If you live in any sort of an urban area, you should be able to identify several locations so that you can move around if you need to. Um, and also just as a matter of logistics too, there's one day when you might be closer to one parish than the other. Um, and if you're not sure where to find a good priest, it sounds tongue in cheek, but if you're not sure where to find a good priest, go to, go to your local Planned Parenthood office. And the reason I say that is there is going to be, in, in a lot yeah. of cases, somebody outside who's carrying a rosary 
That's a yeah. clear giveaway. This is a Catholic who's serious about their faith. Go ask them, say, where can I find a good priest for confession? I mean, this, this, sound, this sounds like a joke, but it, it is not a advice. joke. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Where where can I go? I need a good confessor. What what parish are you guys from? And if you're really lucky, you'll um, stumble across, sometimes there are even masses offered outside of Planned Parenthoods, although the odds of you stumbling upon one of those is rare, but you're absolutely right. There's going to be people um, protesting at abortion abortion slaughterhouses who are going to be able to say yeah go to go to this and such parish and ask for father so and so or just go to this and such parish the confessions are at this and such time that is an excellent piece of piece of advice i'm probably going to put that in uh, in asterisks on the on the post on this um so turning now to mary magdalene who is the exemplar of all this. And it's, it's really scandalous that she is actually over the past decades since the infiltration, Mary Magdalene has been twisted into almost a, a mascot for these feminists, uh, especially for feminists, but also as a mascot for shamelessness and, and so on and so forth. And it's, it's really disturbing and, and scandalizing to see this. Now, Mary Magdalene, there's some debate about who exactly Mary Magdalene was. Was she the Mary who was the sibling of Lazarus, whom our Lord raised from the dead, and sister to St. Martha, who we just had her feast a few days ago? Is that Mary Magdalene? Is there another woman? Is the woman at the well? I mean, there's... Suffice it to say this, Mary Magdalene is, of course, you know, the woman that our Lord saved from being stoned um, as an adulteress. She was an adulteress. We don't know. Also, there's debate about whether or not Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, uh, uh, an actual taking money for sex prostitute, or if she was merely a woman who was kind of a serial adulteress or if she was just a woman who would fornicate. I mean, it, in, in a certain sense, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter tremendously, but we do know that Mary Magdalene had committed grave sins against the Sixth Commandment. She was not a virgin, okay? So we know that she's, she's guilty of Sixth Commandment sins. And if she was a um, prostitute, you can't mitigate any of this by the fact that the Romans were economically oppressing the Israelites. Um, that doesn't absolve a darn thing. Exactly, exactly. So our Lord saves her um, from from being stoned um, for adultery. She then becomes a disciple of our Lord. She enters into the group. She becomes very close to the to the Blessed Mother. She and the Blessed Mother spend a tremendous amount of time together. And, you know, Mary Magdalene is there with our Lord through his ministry. Um she is there at the foot of the cross. We know this. And we also know that Mary Magdalene absolutely was the apostle to the apostles in the sense that she was the first person to see our Lord resurrected on that first Sunday. She's the one who saw him. She mistook him for the gardener. She didn't realize it was him. And then when she realized it was him, she's the one who ran back and told everyone else, including the men, he he's he's alive. He's alive. The tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away. I've seen him. I've talked to him. He's alive. So in that sense, yes, she is called the apostle to the apostles. Now, let let's think about this, okay? Mary Magdalene has spent all of this time with our Lord. Presumably she's had 
multiple, multiple, multiple personal, private conversations with our Lord. She has heard his truth, his teachings, his word, with a capital W, from his own mouth. She is present at Calvary. Not the way that we are present at Calvary when we go to the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, because we are present at Calvary behind the veil of sacramental friendship. She was present at Calvary not with the veil of sacramental friendship. She it was she was there, you know, in the year 33 ARSH. She's there. She's seeing it without any uh, sacramental mediation with her own eyes. She's there. She sees him resurrected. She speaks with him after the resurrection while he's in his post-resurrection phase. She presumably has spoken to him. She's present at the ascension. Okay, She sees him ascend into heaven. If anyone could say that um, they have a full, complete understanding of what it is to be forgiven of your sins by Jesus Christ and to personally experience the mercy of Christ, it is Mary Magdalene. I think we can all stipulate to this point, okay? Look at what Mary Magdalene's life after the ascension of our Lord and after the Pentecost was. It was a life of penance, of penitence. When you see Mary Magdalene depicted in art, there are two ways, there are two forms that Mary Magdalene is depicted in art. The first, and I have sent SuperNerd um, two, two pictures. The first is a picture of the sculpture of Mary Magdalene by Donatello, which is one of his most famous works. It's in Florence. And um, if you look at her, she is, I mean, she's terrifying to behold. She looks like a concentration camp survivor. She is emaciated. Um, she's, she, Mary Magdalene is almost always depicted, she had long hair uh, because it's thought that she was the woman who anointed our Lord's feet and then, you know, anointed his feet with nard and her tears and and wiped her his feet with her hair and so her hair is very important and her ha- her hair is also very important because the the image of a woman with long hair and her hair just hanging down and uncovered is kind of the 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 symbol of a woman who has been guilty of immodesty sexual sin etc so that's the reasoning behind this so this penitent Magdalene, especially in, in the form that Donatello shows in his, in his sculpture, is just this woman whose long, straggly hair, thin, emaciated, she's clearly been living in, in a state of heavy penance, fasting, um, probably living as a hermitess out away. Penitent, she's sorry She's living a life of penitence, even though this woman is probably the person who most directly, profoundly, and fully was able to experience face-to-face, not behind any sacramental veil, the mercy, the forgiveness, all of these things from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Why does she then go on to spend the rest of her life in in prayer, fasting, and penance to the point that Donatello depicts her in his sculpture. 
It's precisely because she is so close to our Lord. It is precisely because she has looked into his eyes and he has looked into hers and she has seen and conversed with true, perfect love with her God, who is perfect goodness, infinite love, infinite beauty. It is precisely because she was there at the foot of the cross. And before that, she was also presumably with Our Lady following Our Lord's passion. It's because she saw him being scourged and she knew that he was being scourged for her personal sins. It is because when she saw him carrying his cross and was following him throughout the streets of Jerusalem and saw him falling underneath the cross, she knew that he was carrying that cross because she deserved to be the one who was being put up on it. Just as she deserved to be the one who was at the pillar being whipped until she was skinned. And when she saw the soldiers treating treating Christ cruelly, she literally put herself in the person of those soldiers saying, I'm the one who did this literally because of my sins. Exactly. She knew when she was at the foot of the cross with Our Lady and St. John, she looked up at Our Lord crucified and she knew that he was doing that and he was hanging up there because of the sins that she had committed personally. It was personally her sins that put him up there in that agonizing death that he died. And that it was, it was personally her fault. Okay? It, it's when you get closer to God and you realize these sins that you have committed, even though those sins were now in her past, the closer you get to him, the more you realize how horrific your sins are and what they mean. And therefore, the more ashamed of them you become, the closer and closer and closer you draw to him. So we have this image from Donatello of the penitent Magdalene as just basically almost kind of of a cave woman, an emaciated cave woman. Her penance is so, the penance that she's putting on herself is so severe. Um, then the other um, motif of Mary Magdalene in art is her as a beautiful woman, because obviously with her sins against the sixth commandment, you know, the, the beauty, the long flowing, gorgeous hair, all of this, that all kind of is, is used to imply that she was, she was very desirable to men and she had no, no problem committing these sins against the sixth commandment that she did. In other words, it was very easy for her. She had no problem finding men to commit these sins with her. At that point um, in her life, she would have fit in very well in modern society. Indeed, indeed. And so, but what you notice from all of these, and I have sent Super Nerd an image of Guido Reni's version of Mary Magdalene. She's a very popular subject in art. Um, But another one that's very, very famous is Titian. Titian's version of Mary Magdalene is very, very famous. You can look these up. I mean, just Google Mary Magdalene in art and do a Google image search or whatever search engine you use. And all of these images will come up and you can confirm all this. Okay, so in this motif, she is indeed shown as a beautiful woman. But what she's always shown as is either looking up to God in heaven and her eyes are just filled with tears and she's weeping. Well, of course she is. She's she's not throwing a damn party because because Christ went to the cross and died for her. She's continuing to weep and weep and weep 
precisely because she realizes now what a massive offense to God her sins were. The other way that she is sometimes depicted is she's shown with a skull, and she's shown looking down, holding a skull, or looking at a skull, pondering sin, pondering mortality, um, pondering, you know, judgment and, and the potential that we all have for eternal damnation. So these are the two motifs of Mary Magdalene, but she's always penitent. She's never smiley, happy, jokey. Look at me. I'm saved. Hey, I, I committed all these sins. And our Lord said, meh, that's okay. That's a lie. Our Lord did not tell Mary Magdalene, meh, that's okay. Meh. No, her sins were horrific, and precisely because he loved her and he drew her close to her, she realized more and more and more, including after the resurrection, after the ascension. She, the entire course of her life was just a, a progression in developing more and more shame, penitence, and sorrow for sin. That is the truth about Mary Magdalene, not this bullshit that these hags are putting forth, these skanks are putting forth, saying that Mary Magdalene is an image of feminism and that Mary Magdalene is an image of this Lutheran heresy of sinning boldly. And then never having to actually be sorry for any of it. It's exactly the opposite. Mary Magdalene is the image of the true um, progression of the Christian life within the church um, of developing ever more shame and sorrow for your sins. And it is blasphemy. It is blasphemy to paint her as anything other than the image and exemplar of penitence. It is blasphemy to call her a feminist. It is blasphemy to paint her as in any way subscribing to the Lutheran heresy, obviously. And we mentioned in the last podcast that it is a tremendous grace if you can uh, achieve the ability to, well, I shouldn't say you achieve the ability, if you are given the grace to literally be able to cry for your sins. And in the same sense that if you were working on some kind of skill, let's call it golf, uh, you're going to go to the local golf course, find the local golf pro, and have them show you how to improve your game. At mass, you are literally at the foot of the, well, you're not literally in the, in the physical sense. You're mystically at the foot of the cross, and think about who else is there. Mary Magdalene is there. And, and if you yes. want to get a, a, a tour from, from the pro at, at, at how to develop sorrow for your sins and, and be given the grace to be able to shed tears for your sins, take advantage of that opportunity. She's willing to absolutely. help you, more than willing. Yes, absolutely. And I don't know, Super Nerd. I, I, to say we're we're literally at the foot of the cross. I think I think that we will find out um, that we we were literally at the foot of the cross. It's just the precision that I made. What happens at the holy sacrifice of the mass is that time and space are manipulated somehow by God because they're His to do with as He pleases. And even though we are behind a sacramental veil of friendship and we cannot see it, we are, we are there at the foot of the cross. I can't, I can't explain this. Nobody can. This is going to be, you know, if, if I make it through my particular judgment, I very, very much look forward to the classes that will be given, presumably in heaven, in which all of these dynamics are explained, in which how um, time and space are, are bent over the altar at the Holy Sacrifice, which allows us to be present there at, 
at the foot of the cross, how transubstantiation works, what exactly was going on there. I mean, we've gotten down to, you know, physics has identified there's atoms and then there's quarks and then maybe there's now theories about there being strings and something like that. Is there some, some level 10 layers down that humankind will never even discover uh, um, in, in, in the earthly sense in which the substance of the bread and the wine is transformed, is transubstantiated into the flesh and the blood of Christ. Is, is there some sort of an exp explanation of uh, physical explanation that we will be given about all this. If you're the sort of person who's um, interested in, um, you know, Genesis and how, how was the universe, the world, men created, what, what exactly did the whole process of the Genesis narrative, how did that play out? How did these things work? All of the questions about physics, nature, all of these things will be answered for us. We'll get, we'll get to learn about this. But I mean, it's, it's something that's very interesting to sit and speculate about. But be, be assured that it is not, when you go to Mass, you're not symbolically at the foot of the cross. You are at the foot of the cross. Just because you can't see anything, there's, there's things going on that none of us comprehend. And when we say in the Creed that our Lord is the creator of all things, both seen and unseen, that that's, you know, that's kind of implying and hinting towards all this. There's all these things that exist in the universe that we can't see. An example of this is just, um, just slightly over a hundred years ago, nobody had any idea about the existence of um, electromagnetic radiation in in the radio spectrum. Nobody knew that there were AM radio, radio waves and FM radio waves or X-rays or gamma rays. The only, the only electromagnetic radiation anyone even knew existed was the visible spectrum of light. And yet all of these things existed. There's been, there's been electromagnetic radiation since the Big Bang, but we couldn't see it. Think of all the things that are going on that we just can't see. And so at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, I'm, I'm sure that these things unseen that we don't understand are happening. But be, be assured that we're very much there and the entire communion of saints in there. All of the angels are there, which is, you know, I, I wrote a piece, I think last year, you know, speculating given the number of stars that we can kind of sort of estimate are in what we see out of the Hubble telescope, that there are something like quadrillions or quintillions of angels and they're all there at every sacrifice of the mass so um <laughs> the notion that the holy sacrifice shouldn't be offered if quote unquote nobody's there is is so profoundly wrong because the entire host of heaven the entire communion of saints everyone is present all all of them are present at every mass there's no such thing as a mass that is offered in which no one is in attendance. To say nothing of the poor souls in purgatory who uh, are sometimes granted the permission to attend mass in a mystical sense, and there have been some cases in history that uh, they have manifested uh, literally as well. I, uh, before we get off the topic, I, I want to get ahead of the emails. <laughs> Anne just said Big Bang, but I'm pretty sure she believes that, that creation as laid out in Genesis is what happened, not really a Big Bang. Yeah, I mean, let there be light, whatever that means, you know, so... Exactly. Uh, one, one other thing I wanted to mention is in terms of how do you understand this? I've always taken a, or I shouldn't say always, but uh, 
I always sort of take a, a, a point of view. If, if you look, if you've ever watched the, the TV show Star Trek, they have these weird ideas of, of being able to warp space and time uh, to the point that you can be in one galaxy in one, one century and by some unexplained Wormhole. phenomenon, yeah, whatever, you, you, you can go to another <laughs> galaxy in a different point in time. Um, yeah, that's fiction, obviously, but the, the reality is that at mass, you, you are transported. You know, we're talking about God here who is outside of space and time to begin with, and so nothing's impossible with him. And that's the other thing, too. Mm-hmm. People will, will talk about, well, how, do you, how can you actually believe that all this happened in Genesis, that creation is like, why are you putting limits on an, an, on an, an infinite being who has infinite right. power? I mean, uh, but back to you know warping space and time, yes, you are mystically there at the foot of the cross, whether you want to say literally or not. I was meaning that in the sense in, in saying mass going to mass is not literally being at the foot of the cross. I was meaning that in the sense that we are not at the year 33 at the foot of the cross in in Southern Israel. Uh, But in in a, in a spiritually literal sense, you are. Um, And, And this is a really important point with Protestants. And when you're talking to Protestants, because one of the common things that they've been taught since the beginning is, Oh, these damn Catholics, they keep crucif they think they're crucifying Christ over and over and over again. No, it's the it's the one sacrifice of Calvary once and for all. But because God is is doing this warping of time and space thing at the holy sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice of Calvary is made present in every single day. So every single day, the way I explain it to people when I'm in front of them is if you take a string or a shoelace or something, any sort of a string that you can hold in your hands, hold one end of it in your left finger, pinch it between your left forefinger and thumb, hold the other side of it in between your right forefinger and thumb. Let's call your left forefinger and thumb where that is on the string, because the string is the entire timeline. Let's call your left hand, that is the moment of Calvary in 33 AD in southern Israel. Your right hand where you're pinching the string is today. All you have to do to understand this is take the string, kind of loop it, and just touch the two pieces together. Touch the piece of string that you're holding in your left hand to the piece of string that you're holding in your right hand. That's what the Mass is. It's the once-for-all sacrifice of Calvary that happened in southern Israel at, at 33 AD by the fact that time and space is bent. That That is made to touch today. And so then what you realize is you see this space on the string between your left hand and your right hand. That is the, you know nearly 2,000 years of time that has passed, what you realize is that what God has done is that every single moment along that string, let's call each of those a day, just for simplicity's sake, every single day, this maneuver has been done somewhere on earth. The holy sacrifice has been offered. Every single, uh, every single, uh, millimeter or whatever you want to call it along the string has been day by day made to touch the day of Calvary. So therefore all of time has been pulled through and reconciled to that one event of, of the cross and of Calvary. Every day is made to touch the day of Calvary. This is, I'm convinced that this is what our Lord meant when he said, um, I will be raised up and I will draw all men to myself. All men will be drawn to me and will be drawn to this moment when I am raised up on the cross and every, all men will be able to come and be reconciled to me by 
by the holy sacrifice of the mass, them being able to go back and touch this this moment in space and time. I will draw all men to myself, not just the people, Mary Magdalene, Our Lady, uh, John, the other two Marys, and all the other people who were there present, uh, the Roman uh, Longinus, the, the Roman who stabbed him in the side, who then became, um, who became a Christian. I'm sure there were many others who were there present who saw it and who became Christian. Um, it isn't just an event for those people. It's for all of us. So St. Peter and all the rest of the apostles, except, of course, for St. John, all of the other apostles fled. None of them were there. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? None of them were there. And yet, that sounds all like, of that them. That sounds like a current theme also. Exactly. But, but you digress. But they, they were able, they were able immediately to then go back and be sacramentally present. Not just be sacramentally present, but because our Lord ha- had because they were all ordained, not just priests, but bishops, every single one of them was able to not only be present, but to be the altar Christus and offer the holy sacrifice of the mass themselves, beginning presumably almost immediately or after Pentecost. I don't know when they all started offering the holy sacrifice themselves. I assume it was Pentecost or thereabouts. But um, yeah, that's that's the reality of what we're talking about. And you have to understand that because that is the reply to the Protestant to, to the silly Protestant notion of you're crucifying Christ again and again. No, 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 no. It's, it's so much, it's so incredible. Let me explain this to you and it will blow your mind. God is bending time and space. So that's the answer to it. Well, it's, there's also the answer. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm Catholic, but I'm, I do know the fact yeah. that he said, do this in memory of me. Now, the very fact he said, do it. Um, that's, do it. that's why we do it because Jesus told us to. It's in your yes. Bible too. Yes, and he, uh, what I also always love about reading um, about the Last Supper is when they, they first arrive and everybody sits down and our Lord says, guys, I have really, really been looking forward to this. Okay, if God Almighty says, I've really, really been looking forward to something, you know, God who created the universe, who created time, and he says, I've really been looking forward to this, to sharing this with you. Um, something incredibly, incredibly important is about to happen. And it's not its not just the shrug your shoulders, symbolic wine tasting thing, you know? That's, so that's the thing about Catholicism, is that it is completely internally consistent. Not only does everything make sense, but once once you learn about it and you understand it, it is so spectacularly satisfying everything makes sense everything's cool there's so much that's cool you learn things and you say oh look at this this is pointing back to this prophecy in the old testament here that's what this is talking about i mean that just happens over and over and over again and the more you enter into the church the mass the office uh, praying, praying the divine office and seeing these things, tying the Old Testament and all of these prophecies in together and how everything is a unified whole makes perfect sense. It, it makes you realize, and the more you learn, so when things like the Bergolian anti-papacy happen, is your faith, is your faith shaken by this, by this wretched Argentinian Freemasonic communist arch heretic? Nah. Bergoglio's a piker. Um, Bergoglio's going to get his. 
um, we should and we should pray for him and we should pray. Oh, the, the Matthew 1720 initiative. This is a perfect conclusion to the whole thing. So I just posted. What was it yesterday? I started an initiative. It's called the Matthew 1720 initiative. It is full fasting on the two days of the week in which we pray the sorrowful, sorrowful mystery of the rosary, which is Tuesday and Friday. And I'm not talking about the Novus Ordo <laughs> fasting rules, which are, to me, the Novus Ordo fasting rules, if I ate that much food in a day, I would consider it gorging. So the I think the Novus Ordo fasting rules are one meal and then two other meals, which have to be smaller and the two together shouldn't add up to the, the big one or something. If I, if I ate that much food in a day, I'd be bloated and miserable. And I mean, no, when I, when I say full fasting, now, obviously, if you have some sort of a health concern, if you're going through chemotherapy or something, use common sense. And this doesn't apply to you. Unite yourself in prayer some other way. But for well, those of us who are... False, false, fasting also encompasses all appetites. It's, it's not just food. So that would be also you know, not listening to the radio, not watching TV, which... Why do you have a TV anyway? Um, yeah, exactly. Not engaging in some other entertainment. It's, it's a full fast, all, not just food, but sensory as well. Certainly, certainly. But in terms of food, um, if you're going to join us in the Matthew 1720 initiative in terms of food, that means no solid food for 24 hours. And it's not that big of a deal, guys. You could do it. And, you know, the proof text behind this is our Lord saying the only way that, that these can be cast out is through prayer and fasting. And so I think um, able-bodied Western people can very, very easily do, do two full fasts a week, united in prayer for full resolution of this Bergoglio situation. I was thinking about this the other day. Um you know, it, it might be the divine providence that Bergoglio dies. Um, for me, if, if he died tonight, that would be catastrophic um, because what they what would probably happen is they would call another faux conclave, given my moral certainty that I hold the position that um, that Ratzinger is the one and only living pope right now. Um so if Bergoglio died tonight, they would probably, uh, they'd call another conclave and they'd elect another anti-pope. And the risk is, is that the one that they elect behind Bergoglio would have exactly the same agenda, except he'd be a considerably younger man. And this is, this is terrifying. The other thing is if Bergoglio is not removed and uh, for me, I mean, he has to be, he, the whole thing has to be declared an anti-papacy in order, for, in order for us to move on in truth. But if, if he is removed, that gives him a much better chance of repenting, reverting. This, this is my intention that I pray for Bergoglio every day, that he be removed as anti-pope and the entire anti-papacy of Bergoglio be declared an anti-papacy because I believe that that is the truth and that's how the church moves forward. And therefore, none of anything that he's done has any weight, meaning, can ever be used, cited in any way as magisterial. Then my intention for Bergoglio is that he repent of what he's done that he revert to Catholicism, and, and that is the only way to phrase this. This man needs to revert to Catholicism because it seems pretty clear to me right now that he does not hold the Catholic faith, okay? So repent, revert to Catholicism, then at some point in the future, die in a state of grace and achieve the beatific vision. That is my intention 
for Bergoglio and we're starting. So spread the word, even if you're not on board with me in terms of being ready to say publicly, I'm morally certain that Bergoglio is an anti-pope. I concede this, I concede this, and so the way I phrased it, um, announcing the Matthew 1720 initiative is, is for a complete resolution to the Bergoglio situation. So that allows everybody, you know, we're all on, we're all in agreement that this is, this is an abject catastrophe. And it also leaves the door open for supernatural intervention. Um, A complete resolution of the Bergoglio situation may in fact, at this point, require require supernatural intervention then that intention that possibility is very much included in the matthew 1720 initiative so tuesdays and fridays days of full fasting praying uh for the church and for resolution of the bergoglio situation i I got an email from a woman this this is such a, a testament to how how terribly far gone the Novus Ordo churches. She left me a voicemail in which she said, it had never occurred to me that I should be praying for the church. And I just, you know, you hear somebody say something like that. Presumably a Catholic who's been going to Sunday Mass fairly regularly for their entire life. And how far gone the Novus Ordo church is that this woman said it never occurred to me that I should be praying for the church. Let me remind you of what um, in, in the Leonine prayers, which Pope Leo XIII instituted for the church, um, after he had a vision, he heard uh, Satan and our Lord in, in dialogue and conversation in which Satan announced his intention to attempt to completely destroy the church. And... The, the prayer that he composed, the O oh God, our refuge and our strength, is, O oh God, our refuge and our strength, look down in mercy on thy people who cry to thee, and by the intercession of the glorious and immaculate Virgin Mary, Mother of God, of St. Joseph, her spouse, of thy blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and all of the saints, mercilessly and graciously hear the prayers which we pour forth for the conversion of sinners and for the liberty and exaltation of our Holy Mother, the Church. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Not only are there prayers throughout the Missal, specifically for the church, you should be praying for the church after Mass, after certainly after every low Mass, and I even, I kneel down and I say the Leonine prayers after high Masses too, after every Mass I pray the Leonine prayers, for the liberty and exaltation of our Holy Mother the Church. And most most Catholics today, most Novus Ordo Catholics today, I think they share this woman's um, ignorance of this. It, it, she said it had never even occurred to me that I should be praying for the church, and I think that kind of that kind of sums it up right there. So, super nerd, I'm looking at the clock here. Uh, I think we better call this one. And then we're going to do a Financial Friday, right? Yes. Uh, I assume okay. we'll have plenty of topics for that. Um, oh, by the yes. way, think- sp- speaking of Financial Friday, if you are a uh, fan of the cryptocurrencies, email me. Go over to uh, supernerdmedia.com and find my contact information. Uh, we're not going to talk about it this Friday, but probably the following Friday. Um, I'd like a little more help from people who are active investors in this uh, because I, I'm, I'm aware of it. I've, I've kind of followed it a little bit from a distance because it's in the, the general technical sphere, but I've never gotten directly involved in it until Ann gave me the assignment to look at it. We're going to talk about this kind of thing. Uh, so if you know more about this, uh, feel free to uh, reach out and, and, and give me your impressions and, and takes on it as well. But yes, we are going to do a Financial Friday this Friday, and we'll 
you'll have to tune in to find out what we're going to talk about. That's right. All right. Let's call it super nerd. Um, I think we've wrapped on the whole the whole notion of shame and we'll put this one in the archive and we'll be back to other topics next week. Absolutely. As, as a general reminder, the Benefactor Masses are on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. Remember to fix your intentions and join with those Masses spiritually. If you have feedback, emails, suggestions, ideas, um, ways to increase in shame uh, or the sense of shame, email podcast at barnhart.biz. Uh, supernerdmedia.com is where you can find ordering ordering information for the Diabolical Narcissism DVD. And uh, any parting words or thoughts for this week? Um, I would also hasten to point out that at uh, Super Nerds website, there is also a donation button. Uh, just hint, hint. Remember, Super Nerd is the one who's putting in the massive amounts of time on this project. And um, if you if you appreciate the podcast, uh, head over there because remember, I have to keep all of my all of my finances completely segre- segregated. Please head over there and uh, show show your gratitude to Super Nerd for his excellent excellent work. Until next week, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Anne. God bless. Thanks, guys. 